My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here. We're in our fourth week in our series on the book of Revelation. We're looking at chapter 13, mainly chapter 13 today. And you know, I was thinking about the world around us, right? The whole world has been just thrust into incredible chaos by something that none of us have ever seen, right? I've never seen a virus. In fact, a virus is so small that it would take 300,000 of them stacked up end-to-end to to make one inch. That's you can only see with like an electron microscope. And yet it has all this effect, this power to throw the whole world into chaos and, you know, all kinds of uh, consequences, the disease caused by the coronavirus, COVID-19, other diseases caused by viruses like smallpox, measles, mumps, shingles, hepatitis, Ebola, rabies, polio, all these things caused by something that nobody could really see, but there it is and the effects are, are huge. And I, and I was thinking about this, um, how revolutionary and life-changing it was for humanity when a couple hundred years ago, or even less, people really started to understand the nature of the microscopic world. And when they understood what was causing these different effects, how much that changed our whole perspective on reality, and it explained so much about life when we really realized that that microscopic world existed that we couldn't see. And I thought about that. You know, there, there's, also, there's another unseen world that it's not unseen because it's too small, but it's unseen because it's not physical, it's not material. There's a spiritual world, a spiritual reality, the Bible says, that is behind all of everything that we could see in this physical world that we inhabit. And it has effects. It has effects in the world we see. And, and you know what? This world really makes a lot more sense when you understand the reality of that unseen world that the Bible talks about. It really makes sense out of a lot of the things that we observe in the world around us today. And that's what we're going to be looking at. That world is revealed for us in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a revelation first of Jesus Christ, but it's also a revelation of the unseen world. And this spiritual warfare that takes place in the unseen world that affects all of us. Now, as I mentioned, we're looking at chapter 13 today. And um, in chapter 13, we're going to start by giving you a little bit of background on chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, we see this warfare played out. We see in, uh, just let me give you the briefest uh, introduction there. Because in chapter 12, we see the people of God are described or symbolized by a woman. And this woman is harassed and tormented by a dragon. The dragon, the Bible tells us, is a symbol of of the devil, of Satan. And Satan brings one-third of the heavenly host with him in rebellion against God, comes down and he's trying to destroy the people of God, and it says that he wants to destroy the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the symbol of this child that comes out of the woman but he's not able to do so. God protects this, the Messiah. And, and then he, so he starts to try to destroy the church, and God protects the church. And so when Jesus wins this victory over Satan, then really all that he has left in the time that remains to him is to try to undermine God's purpose and plan by attacking the people of God. 
And that's what we see. We're going to look at this, this spiritual battle, this struggle that takes place, this war that's being waged, waged, and how that affects us in our life and our world today. Now remember that the book of Revelation, we, we talk about these different lenses, that it speaks first of all to the original readers, the people of the first century. And then it speaks to us in our situation today, really to all of, hum- all of humanity and all of the church throughout history, but it also then speaks about future events that are yet to come that are associated with the time of the return of Christ. So let's, let's keep that in mind. And as we explore this warfare, this unseen world, the first thing I want you to understand is that Satan deceives people through counterfeit Christs. Now, you know what a counterfeit is, right? It's like, so when I was traveling in Asia, I've tra- been over to Asia a couple times, and um, you don't have to go very far in some of the big cities of Asia to find someone on the street corner or whatever who is selling Rolex watches. And lo and behold, the amazing thing is you can get one for like $35. Like, I couldn't believe it, right? Yes, I can, because I know it's not a real Rolex from Switzerland. I know it's a knockoff. It's actually a counterfeit, right? And so a counterfeit is something that somebody makes with the intention to deceive you to think it's the real thing. Well, Satan does that too. He, He creates counterfeit Christs, and we see that in Revelation, but we see it throughout all of history as well. So let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1. John says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. And so he says, he sees this character, right? And this character is the the focal point of the first half of chapter 13. Now, in the ancient Jewish mindset, the sea represented trouble. It represents a place of, of destructive storms. It's a place where invaders came from. And in this context, the Roman invaders came on ships to uh, Asia Minor, where John was living, uh, from Italy. And then when he talks about seven heads, well, in chapter 12, Satan, the dragon, is described as having seven heads. And so we see the connection between the two characters. And then we see later in the book of Revelation that, that horns typically stands for nations and crowns stands for kings or rulers of nations. And, and it makes sense if you're looking at it from the first century perspective that this is about the, the Roman Empire or some Roman emperor. For example... It says, on each head were names that blasphemed God. And the Roman emperors at that time were taking upon themselves names of divinity, that names that could really only be ascribed to God. They were were saying that they were like, like another God in the pantheon of the Roman world. So that would be blasphemous to the real God. And so, and then in the next verse... We see the beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Now this refers back to Daniel chapter 7, where ancient world powers are described by beasts, by predatory animals. And here we see they're all kind of wrapped up in one person or maybe one empire, one, uh, one empire like Rome. And it says that this empire or this emperor is given authority by the dragon, by Satan himself. 
So he's telling the, the early church, looking at it from that perspective, that, yeah, there's an f- unseen power behind the emperor, behind the throne, you might say. There's an unseen power that is set against God, that's trying to destroy what God is doing. And he says, if, you're, if you have wisdom, you'll understand that what's happening here is not just in the political sphere. It's not just in the national sphere, but there's a spiritual thing going on as well behind the Roman emperor. And then we see in uh, the next verse in 3, he says, I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded and beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Now, we said that this beast character is a counterfeit Christ, and here's partly where we get that, because just as Jesus died and was raised again from the dead, this beast has what seems like a fatal wound, but then recovers from it, and the whole world is amazed at that. Now, in the original context, there was an urban legend that went around in the whole first century that Nero, Emperor Nero, who committed suicide, that he was going to come back. He was going to rise again. And so that's the kind of background that we see. But you have this counterfeit resurrection for this counterfeit Christ character. And then in verse 4, it says, They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power. They also worshiped the beast. Who's as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? And so this miraculous or apparently miraculous deed on the part of this character causes the world to be amazed and to start to give their worship to him and their worship to the power behind him, who is Satan. And so this isn't just, I want you to again think about those, those three perspectives. This isn't just about some ancient counterfeit Christ from the first century. But those kind of figures have arisen throughout all of human history. And again, we're looking at it from the first century perspective, the universal perspective of history, and also from the future perspective. And the Bible has a name for this kind of being, this kind of character who arises. That, that, the word that the Bible uses is antichrist. And so an antichrist, whenever one occurs, is someone who is powerful, successful, has a lot of influence, and, but the power of Satan is behind that person so that they actually become, in a sense, a fake Messiah that people look to instead of looking um, to Jesus. Now, again, this isn't just in the first century. It's not just in the uh, age to come when Jesus comes back again. And so we see in 1 John chapter 2 this whole phenomenon. He says, Dear children, the last hour is here. And you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. And so this talks about this future Antichrist. It talks about this is the the previous Antichrist and all of them as well. So in 1 John 4 he says, If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. So he says there's this Antichrist spirit that's at work whenever somebody opposes God, mocks God. We see it in the first century. We've seen it in history, right? Who would, say, who would not say that Hitler or Stalin or Nero or many other characters in history are Antichrists in a very real sense? 
We see it in our own age as well, not just from political figures and rulers, but anybody who mocks God, opposes God. It might be that college professor. It might be someone in the media or a celebrity or a politician. Whoever it is, when they oppose God and try to get the focus on themselves, they could be participating in the spirit of Antichrist. So he gives a warning here about what Satan's tactic is to try to create counterfeit Christ. Now, not only that, but chapter 13 gives us some insight about the weapons that Satan uses through the Antichrist-type characters often uh, to oppose the church. So what we're going to see here is that there are two weapons of Satan. He's going to use deception and he's going to use persecution. All right, so far in chapter 13, the focus is on this Antichrist. This called, they call him the beast. But we see in the middle of the chapter, another beast arises who is sort of the right-hand man of the first beast, kind of the beast's PR agent. And so let's take a look at this second beast. In verse 11, he says, I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb. I have no idea what that means, by the way. I've never seen a lamb with horns. Some symbolism there, I'm sure. He spoke with the voice of a dragon. All right, we've already seen the dragon. But he exercised all the authority of the first beast and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So you see this second beast has kind of two parts of his job description. Uh, number one, he's, like, he's kind of like the, he's the one who implements the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist. And then, then you see he wants to draw the whole world to worship uh, the Antichrist as well. And now if you look at this, Again, in light of the Roman situation of the first century, right around the time that Revelation was written, there was arising this cult of emperor worship. And it wasn't just an unorganized thing. The emperors demanded to be worshipped as a god, and they created this whole organized structure, this whole organized religion around that, so that in every major city of the Roman Empire, there was a whole priesthood, and there was temples built, and a whole apparatus of worship. That would be very much like this second beast. The, the application of this in the first century would be this cult of emperor worship and all the priests that were associated with it. But as we look at throughout history, whenever there's an antichrist character, it does seem like there are other people who become spokespersons and who become promoters of that person. And of course, in the final uh, chapter of history, then we have this final character who, the second beast, who sometimes is called the false prophet, and I'll show you why in the next verses, because he did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belong to this world. See, there's the principle of deception. It's called the false prophet because he, he tries to deceive the whole world into the worship of this beast. He's given this power to do even miraculous signs. And so this is kind of like the original fake news, right? He's, he's casting this narrative, this story about the Antichrist that he wants the whole world to, uh, to buy into. So what you see Satan is doing here is creating kind of an unholy trinity, a counterfeit trinity where you have the dragon the Antichrist, and the false prophet instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you have this counterfeit prophet doing counterfeit miracles to 
try to get people to worship a counterfeit Christ. Now here's what happens next. In verse 14 and 15, he orders the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. And he was permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. So I, I don't know whether this is talking about some kind of deception or trickery. In the ancient world, there were people who would go from town to town, and they, they, had, they would have idols that through some mechanical means or some, some trickery, they could make those uh, idols seem as if they were speaking. And I thought, you know, what about what the possibilities of modern and, and even future technology could do, you know, to, to create a deception, but it's not just deception because you see now it moves into persecution because what the, the false prophet has the statue of the beast saying is that if you don't worship me, you're going to die. Now here's more about persecution in uh, the next verse. He requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or the forehead and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. And so there's economic sanctions that are applied to anyone who won't conform. There's coercion and intimidation so you can't go into the marketplace and buy and sell basic, prop, uh, basic provisions unless you have declared your allegiance to the, this Antichrist character. And then he talks the next about the number of the beast, which he, the next verse says is 666. Talk about that in just a moment. Let me just say this mark of the beast, this mark of the Antichrist, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, furor, there's a lot of interest, intrigue in the, in the literature about, you know, this kind of thing. And people are worried that, you know, if I get a microchip or if I take a vaccine or, or what, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unwittingly, accidentally take the mark of the beast and I'll be then subject to his rule and so forth when he emerges. Well, first of all, nobody knows who the Antichrist is. Like I said, there's Antichrist throughout history. This one final Antichrist, people have been trying to guess who that is for centuries. In the year 1000, in the Reformation, the Protestants said it was Pope Leo and the Catholics said it was Martin Luther. People have been trying to figure that out from day one. But I want you to understand that you're, you will never, as a Christian, you will never unwittingly, accidentally take the mark of the beast. Because it's a moral choice. It says everyone is forced to make that choice. So don't worry about like, oh, what if I suddenly wake up and I realize, oh my gosh, now I've, been ta I've taken the mark of the beast. That's not the scenario that we see. Besides, verse 15 says that if you don't worship the beast, you're going to get killed anyway. So I don't know how many real Christians there will be around in verse 16 to worry about the mark of the beast. Now, I know that's not very encouraging, right? I'm saying you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast because you'll probably be dead. But um, nevertheless... I just want to encourage you that there's so much speculation going on. We don't need to build our lives on speculation about what might happen in the future. But we do understand that there are some realities in the world that, that there's spiritual warfare going on and it takes shape through deception and through persecution. So we want to know what the, uh, what the enemy's up to so that we can be prepared for that. So the issue isn't, am I going to... Anyway, let me, let me put it this way. So deception, Satan's been doing that from day one, right? From 
Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he lied to Eve to get her to buy into a certain narrative to make the choices that she made. And he'll try to lie to us, get us to build our life on lies, the lies about God, like God isn't really real or God isn't really relevant or God isn't really good, or lies about the world around us where he might get us to, to buy into the idea that, hey, it's money, it's power, it's success, it's a relationship with a person, that these are the things that are going to make my life really count and make it really worthwhile. And yeah, there's going to be persecution. Now, I think America is the exception to the rule that most Christians in most countries throughout time have had to face some persecution of some kind because Satan will raise up government and, and, and official powers to oppose the church, but it'll also raise up, it could be in family, it could be friends who oppose the choices that you've made to follow Jesus. So we want to be aware, we want to be ready that that's what he's going to do. So, so how do we respond to that? How, do we, how can we possibly battle against this powerful foe and the forces that he uses in the world and the tactics and weapons that he uses against us, how can we possibly win that fight? Well, the last thing I want to share with you today, I want to encourage you that you don't have to win that fight, that Jesus wins that fight, and we just have to stay connected with him. So here's the last thing we see, that Jesus preserves his people. So what is the answer to this? What is our response to this? We see it in the middle of chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 10, he says, This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. He says, stay close. Stay hang, hang in there with Jesus. Endure whatever comes, whatever antichrists come along the way, whatever tactics Satan uses against the people of God. He says, you got to endure. you got to keep trusting Jesus. Now, this is a big ask, right, on God's part. God, I wish you had said something else because nobody likes to face persecution. But I think it's a really big ask for American Christians because in our culture, we don't like to face hardship or suffering at all. And we're not patient at all. We say, man, can I just give me an easy way out of this right now? But there's a reason why God calls for this, why God asks us to make this incredible commitment to him. And we see it in the first five verses of chapter 14. As the story spills over to chapter 14, we see I, John says, I saw the lamb that's Jesus, remember, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. And it was like the sound of many harpists playing together. You see, this kind of mirrors what we see in chapter 13. Because just as the followers of Antichrist are marked, those who belong to him, those who belong to Jesus are marked by him, marked with the name of the Father, name of the Son, symbolic of his ownership of us. And it happens on Mount Zion, which is a, a site throughout the Bible of God's deliverance. And there's 144,000. I don't think that number is literal. Okay, I think that's a figurative number. 12 times 12 times 1,000. All those numbers have... have significance, symbolic significance. I think he's saying that every single one that belongs to God will be there, will be preserved. So you don't have to worry about, oh man, I got my number and it says 144,001. Darn. 
No, everybody who belongs to God is going to be there. And he's going to be marked and preserved by God. See, look at the next verse. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living creatures and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 145,000 who, what, had been redeemed from the earth. Hang on to that idea. They've kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and the Lamb. They've told no lies. They're without blame. Two things going on in these verses. Number one is you see the character of these people. They're blameless. They're pure. They haven't given in to the Antichrist. They follow Jesus wherever. But the other thing I think is really significant to, to see is that it says in verse 3 that they've been redeemed from the earth. Redeemed is not something you do for yourself. It doesn't say they redeemed themselves. They have been redeemed. That's something that's been done for them by God. And then it says they've been purchased. In other words, again, that's an action by someone else on your behalf. And both of those words talk about this picture of a slave whose freedom is bought by someone else. They were a slave. Someone paid the price to purchase them, and they've been set free. Or someone who's been kidnapped and taken for ransom, a hostage who is now released because the ransom has been paid. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's his action. And so we're not, we're not preserved. We don't win the victory because we've been so faithful or so courageous. But it's because Jesus is so generous. See, there's this idea that's going around in, in the religious world. I think wherever you go, you hear this in, in religious talk, is that if we do certain things... For God, then God will do certain things for us. If we're faithful, if we're committed, then God will preserve us. No, it's just the exact opposite of that. That's called transactional thinking. I do A, God does B. No, it's just the opposite of that. God does certain things for us. And as a result, then we act in a certain way toward him. So this victory is not because these people of God, who you and I are probably in there, but it's not because we are so dedicated, so courageous, so faithful, so pure, so devoted that Jesus wins this victory for us. No, Jesus wins the victory and then as a result, in response, then we're faithful to him, then we're devoted to him, then we follow him, we trust him, and all the rest. And so I guess what we take away from this whole chapter is we understand that there is an unseen world. The biblical worldview, there's an unseen world that affects the world that we live in today. And behind the scenes, Satan is at work. And he's working through human powers and through human individuals in an attempt to undermine or destroy the work of God through the people of God. So he wants to deceive us. He wants to intimidate us. What's the answer? If you or I try to resist him on our own strength, forget it. We don't have, we can't measure up. But we don't have to because Jesus has won that victory on our behalf and we're swept up in it as his followers if you are a follower of him. And so the answer today is stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus and, and, and rely on the victory that he already made. Stay close to Jesus and you won't be knocked out of the saddle by opposition or persecution. Stay close to Jesus and in his word and you won't be deceived by false truths. That's what we want to encourage you guys today 
as you discern what's happening in the unseen world, how it affects the world that we live in, that we see, that we stay close to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, for your goodness to us. Father, we are so encouraged by how you're at work and what you've done for us on our behalf. And so thank you that we, we just want to walk in your victory. We want to be discerning, God. We want to know what's real in the world around us. We want to know truth, your truth. We want to be faithful and, and devoted to you. And so, Father, we're trusting in you. We're trusting in your victory. We're trusting in your power and your presence in our lives. And as we do, Father, we, we know that you're going to do the things in us that you want to do, that you, that you plan to do. We surrender to that in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.